Now remember, Satan, he's called the God of this world. God initially gave this world to Adam and his descendants, that would be us. But because we sinned in with Adam, the world fell and man lost his dominion. So Satan is called with a small g, the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Adam lost the farm, so to speak. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in Chapter 5 of the Revelation, where we're introduced to a seven-seal scroll that only Jesus is worthy to unroll. So far this week, Dr. Brogi has shown in this passage that this scroll is a picture of broken humanity, that when Adam fell in the Garden of Eden, we, as all of his descendants, also experienced the separation from God. And the fact that only Jesus is able to open this scroll underscores that only He is able to restore a right relationship between us and God. And that's where we pick up today as we see beginning in verse 5 what a magnificent Savior Jesus really is. The Apostle John, he's overcome with grief because no one is found worthy to open the book with its seven seals. He knew the seriousness of this situation. He knew that human destiny will remain a closed book, that all of God's promises will be nullified if it cannot be opened. And so he weeps, not as someone who is just disappointed, but someone who is in despair. It's like God is allowing his servant to go through a bad dream to underscore for us that there is hope. And of course, this would be great news to the seven churches that were being persecuted. And the answer is going to come from one of the 12, from one of the 24 elders whom we studied last week. Look at verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book in its seven seals. The lion that is of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, those are very significant Jewish titles. They're introduced to us here in Revelation 5 in kernel form, but they become very important as we work through the Revelation, and that's why we're not skipping this. They refer to prophecies that God made concerning the Messiah. The Bible predicted that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah, specifically the family of David. Remember, Jacob had 12 sons, and one of those sons was named Judah. And God predicted, he prophesied that his son Judah would be the progenitor, his people, for the Messiah. And out of that tribe, there are all these different families, and one family in particular, namely the family of David, to tighten the focus a little bit more. And by the way, these messianic titles alone will become clear reminders to us that Israel is going to come back on center stage during the time of the Great Tribulation. It's very important when you think about that. So, who is this one who is worthy to open? Stop weeping. Behold, the lion. The lion. Remember, Jacob, when he blessed Judah, he called him a lion's whelp. And so they camped under the banner of a lion, as we saw last time. And the lion of the tribe of Judah is one of the great messianic titles in the Old Testament that's repeated here in the Revelation. Now, remember, Jesus grew up in a family with at least seven half-brothers and sisters. 
His four brothers are named, and sisters is plural. That's six, so that would make a family of seven children plus Mary and Joseph. This idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary is not a biblical concept. The way our Roman Catholic friends get to that is they do from the Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible, where brother can mean cousin, but brother in the Greek New Testament, the language God inspired it in, can only mean brother as sister, all right? So anyway, here's the point. He grew up in this family, and uh, there are all these different brothers and sisters that he grew up with, and I can imagine what that was like. I mean, imagine growing up in the family where, uh, you know, Jesus is like, you know, Jesus never does anything wrong. Why can't you be like Jesus, you know? I mean, you can imagine the, the animosity that could have developed among some of the brothers and sisters. And of course, there, there came a time in their, in their life when Jesus said, look, I'm not just uh, your brother. I'm Messiah. I am God in human flesh. And what did they conclude? He's, he's crazy. He's lost his mind. He's out of his gourd. He's lost it, man. So this is an important title. He's of the tribe of Judah. Judah, we get our word Jew from that particular brother. Jacob prophesied that Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. But the elder also described this one who is able to open the scroll as being of the root of David. That speaks of Messiah's royalty. Remember, three big titles for Jesus in the New Testament. Son of God, affirming his deity. Son of man, affirming his humanity. Son of David, affirming his royalty, that he is king. And so Messiah is going to rule on David's throne. God said that to Mary by the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1, that your son is going to sit on David's throne. When did that happen? It has never happened. But it is going to happen. And so for my dear brothers in the Lord who are into replacement theology, that God is done with the Jew, that Israel is of no significance, they are not plainly, literally interpreting what God said concerning his son and his right to rule upon the earth. The prophet Isaiah, we read it every Christmas, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. That hasn't happened yet. A child's been given to us, but the governments have not rested on his shoulders. We studied in Daniel that in one verse of Scripture, both comings of Christ could be magnified. And of course, if you're a Jew living in the first century and you're under the oppression of Gentiles as they had been since the time of King Nebuchadnezzar and will be until the end of the tribulation, you'd want a victorious Messiah who would crush Rome. One who would have the governments on his shoulders, not one who came in sandals walking through dusty streets and ends up crucified. They didn't want that kind of Messiah. But remember, there are two comings of Messiah. First, he comes as a suffering servant, but then he comes as a mighty ruler who will rule and reign over the earth. The governments will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. He's the Eternal Father. Not that he is the Father, but he's the Eternal Father, and that by his work on Golgotha, he is able to birth spiritual children, people who are born again, who become members of the family of God. He is the Prince of Peace. But here's the point. We can understand the root of David in that term because it communicates both his deity and his humanity. He's the predecessor of David. He's the root of David. 
but he's also the offspring of David. And so when you go to Isaiah chapter 11, you see those pictures. He is the shoot that comes out after David, but at the same time, he is the root of David. As far as his humanity is concerned, he is the shoot. He comes after David. As far as his deity is concerned, he is the root of David. Remember, Jesus presented this same conundrum in Matthew 22 to the Jews. And he said, remember, David, the Lord said to my Lord, I'm going to make all of your enemies under your feet. And then Jesus asked them a question. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Because Jesus is not only the predecessor to David, he is a descendant of David. He's the root and he's the shoot. And so he's underscoring here that he is not only David's uh, son, so to speak, he is David's creator and he is David's king. Jesus says in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, I am the root and the descendant of David. There it is in one verse, the bright and morning star. He is the only person who could be both fully human and fully God. He's born as a Jew upon the earth. He's of the tribe of Judah of the family of David, but he can also say before Abraham was Yahweh, I am. Now we read in verse 6, and I saw between the throne with the four living creatures, we were introduced to them last week, we'll study them more next time and in the weeks to come. I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, notice, a lamb standing. This elder speaks to John with full assurance that there is one who is able to break the scrolls. One who is able to break the seals on the scroll. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he has overcome. Now in verse 6, he indicates that the victory did not come from the paws of a lion, but from a lamb. Who is able to overcome? The lion of the tribe of Judah. John looks. But he doesn't see a lion with its mighty mane and its ferocious paws. He sees a lamb, a lamb standing as if slain. Now, John loves to use the term lamb to describe Jesus. In fact, he is the only gospel writer who does so. John the Baptist introduced the Lord Jesus with the words, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In over 30 places here in the Revelation, he refers to the Lord Jesus as a lamb. No doubt picking up the terminology from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a chapter I used to use at Duke University in Jewish evangelism. And if God gives me a chance when I go to Israel to share with a Jew, I go to Isaiah 53. Because like Paul, you have to reason from their scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. And Isaiah 53, 7 says, Messiah was oppressed and he was afflicted. It's what we call a prophetic past tense. When a Hebrew man wanted to underscore how sure and certain something was that was going to happen in the future, he put it in the prophetic past. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. So the lamb becomes central to this book, and the cross of that lamb becomes in the forefront of our thinking. It's the heart of the book. And interestingly, he doesn't use the word that you would expect for lamb. 
He uses the Greek word for lamb that is uh, the, the diminutive form of a little baby pet lamb. So he's making this huge contrast between a ferocious lion and a little baby lamb to underscore the significance of how God was going to get the title deed back. Now remember, Satan, he's called the God of this world. God initially gave this world to Adam and his descendants, that would be us. But because we sinned in with Adam, the world fell and man lost his dominion. So Satan is called with a small g, the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Adam lost the farm, so to speak. And there's no son of Adam who is able to redeem the world. Remember, I took you to Jeremiah 32 because the prophet, based on the Levitical law, which was a type of what Messiah would do, Leviticus 25, he had to purchase the land for a sum of money. God has to purchase the world with the blood of a lamb. He is going to purchase our redemption because remember when man fell, the whole world fell with it. The world as you see it today is beautiful and as magnificent it is in some parts of this earth. It doesn't even begin to compare the way God originally made it. So he comes as a lamb who is worthy to open the book. He is able to do it because he is going to die as a lamb slain. And when we study the Revelation, and as we work through this book, this slain lamb, again, the cross is central. A Sunday school teacher thought she would ask a clever question of her children one day, and she said, kids, I want to ask you a question. What in heaven is man-made? And most of the kids said, oh, there's nothing in heaven man-made. No, everything in heaven is stamped, made by God, so to speak. No made in China there. Mm -hmm. uh, and one little boy stepped up. He said, no, there's one thing man made in heaven. She said, oh, what's that, little Johnny? The nail scars of Jesus. And they are still there. Just as Jesus in his resurrected body invited Thomas, see here are my hands, look here at my sides, we sing it in that great hymn, crown him the Lord of love, behold his hands inside, rich wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. He's a lamb, but notice, he's a lamb standing as is slain. That affirms he is a victorious lamb. He is the lamb who is not only pierced through for our iniquity, but the one whom the prophet said in that 53rd chapter, who would not undergo decay. Why? Because he would rise again from the dead. And so in chapter 1 of the Revelation, Jesus said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So here in verse 6, I saw between the throne and the elders a lamb standing. He stands with all of the blessings, with all of the authority, with all of the right to take earth back, and we're going to see him do that beginning in the sixth chapter with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. John brings together these two images of a lionly lamb, a sovereign, reigning, ferocious lion who is going to release his wrath, and a lamb 
who has died so that men can escape that wrath. I saw between the throne with the four living elders and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. Notice, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. We are now talking about the power of this lamb, about the power of the Lord Jesus. He's no longer a passive, meek lamb led to slaughter. He is mighty. He's described here as having seven horns. And if you were with us in our study of Daniel chapter 8, I went through the imagery in the Bible. You can go back and listen to it as to how horns are representative of governmental authority, of one who is in charge. And the fact that he has seven horns, seven being the, the, the number of complete and absolute perfection, with absolute perfection and complete power, he will rule. And he has seven eyes. You know, I know you read seven horns, seven eyes, seven spirit, after a while your eyes start glazing over, you know, gee whiz. But these are important. The eyes of the Lord see. And Jesus has perfect sight. No one is going to pull the wool over his eyes. He will see everything, and alongside in this great Trinitarian scene are the seven spirits of God the Son, of God the Spirit, whom we saw express his seven ministries, and he too is watching. Verse 7, and he came and took the book out of the right hand of him, the Father, who sat on the throne. Now, interestingly, remember in Greek, there's not only the time of time, but there's the kind of kind. It's kind of time. There's the time of time like we have, past, present, and future. And we have a little more difficulty in English giving the kind of time. Like there's a present tense that can be ongoing. Well, he uses here not only a past tense, but he uses what's called an intensive perfect. You say, well, that blesses me, Pastor. Well, let me, let me bless you with it. He, he is underscoring, because you wouldn't expect it here, he is underscoring that when the scroll is given to God the Son... It's never released. He has absolute authority, and no one is going to take it away from him. And when John sees this and John realizes this, this man who, Clio, is weeping, sobbing deeply with the rest of heaven, as we'll see next time, will be singing and praising the Lamb upon the throne. Now, how are we going to apply this text of Scripture? Let me make some suggestions as we close. Number one, I am reminded today by way of introduction that God is not done with the nation of Israel. He just dropped in these two terms, like the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David. And he's going to expand on them, and he's going to show you through the revelation that the people of Israel are front and center. Why is that important? Because there's a lot of Christians, even evangelicals, who teach what's called replacement theology. And they just say, oh, that's just symbolic. God's not really using the Jew. And it was hard to preach if you were a born-again pastor a hundred years ago that God was not done with the Jew, that just as he used the Jewish people to bring about the first coming, he'll use them to bring about the second coming. I've told you that the return of Jesus for his church is imminent. There's never ever in the history of the world been a prophecy that needed to be fulfilled 
for Christ to come and catch up his church. All kinds of things have to happen for the second coming. A one-world government, a one-world economy, a one-world ruler, and so on. A, a mark that men must take to be able to buy or sell anything. 666, all kinds of prophecy. But when God begins to set the stage for the second coming of the Messiah, you know the rapture that precedes it is that much closer. When you see the Christmas decorations around Halloween go up in Walmart, you know that Thanksgiving is near. Why? Because Thanksgiving precedes Christmas. And when you see God setting the stage, gathering the Jews back into Israel, reestablishing them as a nation, look up, my friends, because God is setting the stage for His Son to come and the promises that God made in the Old Testament were unconditional to the Jewish people. The church has not taken them. God is going to bring, as we see in the Revelation, the people of Israel front and center because God is not done with them yet. In fact, the instrument that God is going to use is this wrath that's going to begin to unfold in the sixth chapter that halfway through becomes the great tribulation. The tribulation period becomes the great tribulation period, and God will use it so that the Jews will look on him whom they have pierced. They'll realize this was all in our scriptures, and they're going to say, Yeshua is Lord, Jesus is Lord. Secondly, not only do I am I reminded by introduction that God is not done with Israel, Jesus Christ is not a person that you can easily dismiss. When you read this passage, John in this vision weeps because no one is worthy to open the book. And the only one in all of the universe who steps up is called the Lamb. It's Jesus. Do you really want to believe, as millions of people say they do today, that Jesus is just a prophet? I want to tell you, if you conclude in your mind that he is just a prophet, just another religious teacher, then you are basically saying to God, God, I am rejecting what your word says I'm going against the plain teaching of the Bible that there is only one in all the universe who is worthy to open the scroll. And when we come to it next time, we're going to see all of heaven worshiping the Lamb standing to the right of the throne. Listen, to worship anyone other than God is sheer blasphemy and idolatry. But all of heaven is worshiping Jesus just as those two women in that garden fell down at his feet and worshiped him. Listen, a day is coming and the scroll is going to begin to be opened. And you talk about some chilling pages. I mean, by the time we're done with the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you're going to say, how could anyone live? And that's only the start. When you hit the midpoint of the tribulation, I mean, it gets unbelievable chilling. And if you're left behind, you'll be here to experience that. And that wrath on the earth will then turn into the eternal wrath of God. A day is coming when you will meet Jesus. You will either meet him as a lamb who died in your place, whom you entrusted and embraced as your personal Lord, or you will meet him as the lion of the tribe of Judah in his mighty fury and wrath. Don't ever buy this stuff that, oh, God is so loving that he is not going to judge us. People say, well, I don't believe in the God of the Old Testament, a God of wrath. I believe the God in the New Testament. I said, you've never read the New Testament. 
Because when you read the New Testament and the wrath of God, the expressions and the definitions are so much more severe and clear than anything you will find in the Old Testament. God has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He that believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe, the wrath of God abides on him. And if you die for all of eternity without God's Son, you'll have no one to blame but yourself because God has made a provision. One day in heaven, we'll be there. The church will be witnessing it. The Lamb will take this seven-sealed scroll. He'll take it out of the hand of the Father, and He will begin to open it, and it will be an end of sin and man's rebellion and Satan by the time it is all done. And if you know the Lord, you will enjoy Him. But if you don't know Him today, my friend, it will be your fault. What will you do? What will you do with Jesus? You cannot ignore Him. You cannot write Him off. You have to either say, I reject this book as the Word of God or I embrace it. But the picture of this one is so clear you can't straggle on some fence with no decision. Now, our Father, we thank you today for being able to crack the door to this great chapter. Thank you that you will use this, I believe, to prepare us as we study the revelation. And may we as your people have compassion on individuals that we'll meet even this week, maybe even today, to warn them of the wrath that is to come. You've commissioned us to go and to share, help us to be ready and available and wanting. Give us that opportunity. We know we can't speak to everyone, but we can speak to someone. And so we pray with the Apostle Paul of old that you would give us an open door and that this week you might give us not only the open door, but the ability to make the gospel clear. I pray today, Father, for someone with who's listening here or maybe even some other country of the world who is unsure of their salvation, help them to know that because Jesus is the slain lamb who is resurrected and standing, because he died and was buried and was raised, what you call the gospel, the power to save us, that if they will call upon him in humility to save them and to change them, that you will do it right now. Thank you for your promise. Help someone to say in their heart, in faith, knowing you cannot lie, Lord Jesus, save me. And thank you, our Father, that though the people of this world think that they may be in control, and while at times, and we turn on the news, Father, and it seems like the world is out of control, you are on your throne, and you are unfolding history just as you planned by your sovereign ways and power. And we bless you for that and for the stability that it brings into our lives. We bless you and worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen again to today's study from Revelation chapter 5, titled The Lamb and the Scroll, use the Search the Scriptures app available from the iTunes or Google Play stores or listen online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478. 
Just ask for program REV12. Don't forget, Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. During these uncertain times, people are more open than ever to hearing the gospel message of hope and salvation. Won't you help us proclaim this message throughout the world? If you're able to give, use the Search the Scriptures app or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org or call 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll look at the song before the seals as we continue our study in the Revelation and search the scriptures.